Well, friends, if you'll just bear with me a moment. I'm a rather higher churchman than Darren. And if you just get that up a little there. It's good. Well, it has, as, uh, as has been said, it's been a while since I was uh, privileged to come and, and speak to you here at Abbey. I'm just looking around at many familiar faces and thinking about the passage of time and I'm marvelling at the toll that the years have taken on some of you, frankly. <laughs> Whilst leaving me so miraculously unscathed and unchanged, it's really quite remarkable. I was trying to explain, and this is pertinent to the passage of the Bible that I'm going to read in a few moments, um, but I, I was trying to explain to a teenager a while ago what I did for a living. You see, people generally, not just church people, but people outside the church, they, they kind of get the idea of a vicar or equivalent, you know. Um, they get the idea of a missionary in some dim sort of way. But trying to explain to people about uh, an itinerant, a peripatetic preacher who travels widely and works right across the board denominationally, you know, with all manner of churches. I mean, I'm with you today. It's Baptist next week and Methodist and Pentecostal and all these sort of things, you see. Trying to explain that to someone with no real understanding of church or how things operate, that, that's actually quite a difficult call. I, I found that when people in a social context ask me what I do for a living, like the farmer recently who said, uh, what do you do for your sins? <laughs> I thought, boy, you really walked into this, pal. I, <laughs> let me tell you what I do for my sins. But I, I, trying to explain, it, it's quite a difficult call. I found it's an absolute brilliant conversation stopper. People say, you know, you, you, you're at a meal or a social event. They say, you know, what do you do? And I say, I'm an evangelist or I'm a preacher. And that's it. The whole conversation crashes and burns and hardly ever gets off the ground again. Um, so I was trying to explain to a teenager about being a traveling preacher. And um, suddenly it is as if a little bit of glimmer of understanding came. I saw it in his eyes and he said, I see, he said, you're like a vicar but more exciting. Yes, I'm an exciting vicar. Okay, now, do, have we joined up? To, now, I tell you that because, you see, uh, the passage we're going to look at from the Gospel according to St. Luke and chapter 4 tells us about when Jesus started his work as a traveling preacher. He was actually an itinerant preacher, teacher, healer for about three years. And that public aspect of his teaching and preaching kicks off here in the events recorded in Luke's Gospel in, in chapter 4. Um, you may have heard the saying about preachers. You may even have proved it to be true in your own experience. But preachers um, tend to be six days invisible and one day incomprehensible. Um, well, Jesus was neither. He was highly visible most of his activity did not take place in temple or synagogues, but on the quayside, where the fishermen were, in the marketplace with the, the traders, on the road, in the hills. Um, he was highly visible, engaged with people, involved with people, 
in a way, actually, which I think it has to be said, probably very few preachers really are today. And not only was he highly visible, he wasn't invisible, he was also incredibly comprehensible. He, he brought a clarity, a freshness, a compelling quality to his teaching and preaching which was unlike anything that the people of his day had previously encountered. They said nobody ever spoke like this man. One of the things they marveled about about Jesus was the certainty, the confidence with which he spoke. The insight he said he doesn't teach us like the Pharisees do. He teaches with authority. And I think the way that actually unpacks is this. You see, the, the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the days of Jesus, um, if they were explaining to people the meaning of a somewhat difficult, obscure, maybe even contentious passage from the Old Testament prophets or from the laws of Moses written down in the the scriptures, then they might say something like this. They'd say, well now, concerning the truth taught here, the way I, and then they used a particular expression, the way I read it, they'd say, is, and then they'd give their own interpretation, their own take or spin on it, you understand? You go to another rabbi, another Pharisee, another teacher of the law, and they'd say, ah, yes, well, it is true. Many read it this way, but the way I read it, you, you see, so it may be this, it may be that. You pay your money, you take... Sorry, I'm... seem to be channeling some Jewish comedian. I, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you see, that's what they'd say. Into that, into that situation came Jesus, saying, look, this is what God is like. This is what he wants. This is what he doesn't want. This is how he feels about you. This is right. This is wrong. This is true. This is false. And you can take it from me. And that sort of clear, confident, assertive, authoritative, incisive teaching, it was just, it was fresh to them. They'd never heard anybody speak like that. And they'd never seen anybody go on to back up what he was saying or support his right to speak like that by doing the miracles that Jesus did, you see. And all this business of traveling around, teaching, preaching, it all finds its beginning here in the Gospel of Luke. If you're using one of the church hardback Bibles, I don't know if the text is going to be projected or not. If you're using your own Bible, then you're looking at Luke chapter 4. So that's just the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, or third, beg your pardon, Matthew, Mark, I've learned these things. Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay. Luke was an unusual man. He actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer. The Apostle Paul wrote more books. He wrote 13, possibly 14. We can argue about that. But he certainly wrote 13 books. But in terms of column inches, the number of words, Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Because he wrote not one book, the gospel that bears his name. He wrote the second book, the sequel to the gospel, the Acts of the Apostles. Very substantial chunk of our, our Bible written by Luke, who uh, unusually, were, for Bible writers, was not a Jew. And uh, he made a, a sort of forensic study of the life of Jesus. 
That's what he tells us in chapter 1. Took particular note of, of, of dates and times and details and chronological order. Did his research. He wasn't sloppy. He wasn't lazy. <coughs> Took pains to go to those who'd been eyewitnesses. And he writes down for us this, this wonderfully cogent account of the life of Jesus. And this is how it starts in verse 14, or at least part of it. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Uh, he'd had a pretty grueling time immediately prior to this. He'd had a great time. He'd been baptized. God had spoken from heaven. God had sent help from heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he'd had a most wonderful experience being baptized. He even got a glimpse back into heaven. That's what the Bible says. Heaven opened. The Holy Spirit came on him in the form of a dove. And God spoke from heaven when Jesus was baptized. I mean, that's a baptismal service like none of us have ever been to. Immediately following that, for 40 days, alone, in the wilderness, going one-on-one -on -one with the devil. Enduring, can I say it reverently? God only knows. God alone knows what what agonies of soul and, and struggles. But that's behind him now. He's now primed and ready to launch onto the public scene as a teacher and preacher of the kingdom. And he returns to Galilee up in northern Israel in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread, verse 14, through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Uh -huh. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Remember Jesus born in Bethlehem, as we'll be thinking and are thinking as we approach the Christmas uh, celebration. And then a brief time, not quite sure how long, in Egypt as a, as a refugee. And then back to Nazareth, where he was brought up. And on the Sabbath day, verse 16, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And then you get this quotation from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, well, people loved the way he spoke, didn't they? I mean, it's quite evident. They, they really did. Everyone praised him. And uh, in verse 22, which we'll get to in a moment, they were all amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They loved the way he spoke, but not necessarily so much what he actually said. The way he said it, oh, brilliant. Never heard anything like it. What he said, particularly about himself, mm, that, that, was, that wasn't received quite so well, was it? In fact, the people seem to agree that he was the best preacher they would ever try and kill. Because that's how the passage unfolds. They begin by listening to him, they end up by trying to murder him. Um, it's, um, it's very pleasant, I mean... To be honest, uh, more than I deserve, more than I could possibly deserve, I've been on the receiving end occasionally of compliments from people who've been listening to me preach. I'm not holding my breath for this morning, but I, 
It, it has happened. In fact, somebody actually, when I arrived, you know, the first thing anybody said to me when I got to Abbey today was, so glad you're here. You're my favorite preacher. I mean, talk about being buoyed up for coming in. I don't want to be smug about it, but I mean, I was, you know. So bless that person for their encouragement. They're not here. They're out with the Sunday school now. Um, doesn't say much about their discernment, to be honest, but it, but it was very nice of them to say so. But it is nice when people say pleasant things about us, isn't it? and commend us and compliment us on, on you know, what they see as a job well done, as it were. Sometimes, as Christians, we can be just a little bit clumsy, can't we, in paying compliments to each other, as we are sometimes in offering criticism. I think about someone who went up to a preacher once and said, thank you for that sermon. It, it was like water to a drowning man. <laughs> I remember Roger Chilvers listening to me preach some some years ago uh, uh, when I was doing an after-dinner talk, and I, it, it didn't go very well. I wasn't very pleased with the way I, uh, way I presented the, the, the talk, and I was feeling a bit miserable about it. Uh, went over to Roger, I suppose, hoping for a bit of encouragement. And, uh, he, I said, oh, that wasn't very good. He said, I've heard you worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, pe- people, people loved the way that Jesus spoke. You know, it, it is, it's kind of possible, isn't it, to have a tremendous admiration for Jesus without any desire to buy into his mission or the truth that he's actually, actually teaching. Well, the whole thing begins very promisingly. He, he'd been preaching and teaching uh, in various regions of, of Israel. He has not neglected his own town and his own people. That, that, that I think, is actually in a small way significant. comes back to his own people. To, to teach them and to, to reach them. He's welcomed back. He's invited to read the scriptures in the synagogue and to preach. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's not exactly pomp and ceremony going on here, but there's a bit of formalism here, isn't there? Um, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it. At the end, he rolls up the scroll. He doesn't let it spring back. There's a bit of care in the way he's handling this very precious document. And then he hands it back to the attendant. Now, I just sense there's a bit of reverence here for this scroll. Because this is God's word for the people. And the way they handle it outwardly perhaps says something about their whole attitude to it and to what God is, is saying through it. There is some reverence. I, I was preaching some years ago in a church of Scotland church at Balthron. It's about 18 miles or so west of Stirling. And it was the first time I'd been in a church of Scotland church. And so I was, um, the, the order of the event, was, the service was explained to me. And uh, when I went into the church, walked into the church, um, I was preceded in by a church officer called a beadle. And the beadle bore in his arms, he had a sort of clerical gown on, black gown on, and he walked in with, you know, very formal. And um, he walked in with this big leather-bound Bible in his arms. He preceded me. He got to the, 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 the lectern, which wasn't a music stand, some great big thing with a brass eagle all over it. Or got to the lectern and he ceremoniously opened the Bible. And when he'd done that, the service could begin. 
Now, I'm not suggesting you should adopt that particular policy. I don't, mean, I don't think we should give Phil Ricketts sort of clerical gowns and big leather-bound Bible or anything like that. And, uh, but I don't think we should be quick to dismiss it as just empty form either. I rather like the way the Bible was being given center stage. This is the word of God. When we read what God has written, we hear what God is saying. That's why the Bible's a big deal here at Abbey Church, isn't it? Because we believe that God speaks today through that which he has already said. And when we read the things he has spoken previously, we hear his voice speaking to us today. Now, the, these words were written by Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus read this scroll. And this scroll had been carefully preserved and carefully handled, was looked after and highly regarded. And I think it's a good attitude to have. Not to the Bible per se. I mean, look at my old Bible. I scribble in it. I, I stick things in the front of it and they'll generally abuse it. I'm not, I'm not saying we should be precious about the actual book. But we should have that reverential attitude to hearing the word of God. And that's, I think, what we, what we see here. Now, that passage from Isaiah, Isaiah had been speaking to the people hundreds of years before about someone who would come who would be in a fuller sense than anyone previously been God's servant. This someone would be uniquely qualified to serve God. This someone would be specially chosen to serve God. This someone would be divinely enabled to serve God. This someone would, by his coming, his suffering, his eventual triumph, would make it possible for God's people to be reunited with him. That's the one Isaiah had been writing about. And for 700 years, God's people, the people of Israel, have been wondering, who is this person going to be? When will they come? How will we know that they are here? And when you understand that 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 uh, wondering that had gone on for centuries, we begin to understand the, the, the earth-shattering <laughs> significance of what Jesus is about to lay on them. So we pick up the reading at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And I love this bit. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. There's this sort of expectancy. The, 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 at, the attitude, the atmosphere is pregnant with expectation. Somehow, something in the way he's read that, something in the way even it's been read. You see, somebody once said, when you read the Bible, um, good reading of the Bible is exposition. There's a sense in which when we read the Bible well, with due thought for punctuation, for pause, and for pitch, and for pace, and all these things, the Bible begins to explain itself in large measure. And something in the way he's read this has really, really just, it set people on the edge of their seats, and they are looking at him. I remember years ago, I, was, um, I went along to a Church of England parish church in a Warwickshire village, and uh, I was there by permission of the vicar to advertise some evangelistic meetings, which I was uh, having in, the, in a large tent 
on the recreation ground in that village every, every evening for a fortnight. And the vicar had kindly said I could go along to the parish church for a Sunday morning service and I could have a few minutes just to explain to people what was happening in this big tent and in, invite them. That was very gracious of him and I was glad to do it. Um, when I got there, he came up to me a bit sort of embarrassed and diffident and said, look, um, I'm afraid the person who was going to read the second lesson today, the New Testament reading, um, hasn't turned up. Um, did I feel he wanted to know that it was within my range of skills that I might be able to read the Bible that morning? You see, I said, well, yes, with due humility, yes, I think I probably can struggle through. And... Um, and so I did. I got up and I read the second lesson, which was a passage I wasn't particularly familiar with from one of Peter's letters in the New Testament. And it was in a Bible version that I was almost entirely unfamiliar with. So I don't think I made a very good fist of reading it personally. But that night, a man, a farmer in that congregation uh, came along to the tent and uh, really made a commitment to Jesus Christ to follow him. He, he would have been, by his own confession, at best a sort of nominal Christian. But it got real, real fast for him that night in the tent. And when I was talking to him afterwards, I said, why did you come to the tent? He said, because this morning when you read the Bible, he said, I'd never before heard it read in a way that made it make sense. That's all. You know, it's a very powerful thing. Do, do not disregard as unimportant the reading of the Bible. Give attention to reading, and the public reading of Scripture is a New Testament exhortation. Well now, uh, let's pick up the reading in verse 21, because we're going to read here um, the very first words of Jesus' sermon. He's read the, 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 the Bible, he's given the scroll back, he now sits down, which was Jewish custom to preach, rather than stand up as we do it. He now sits down, everyone's looking at him, and these are the very first words, as far as we can tell. There's a great deal of this sermon, which I think we're not given. But as far as we can tell, these are the first words of the sermon. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boy, I tell you, that did everything that a good sermon introduction is meant to do. It grabbed their attention. It engaged their minds. And, as we shall see, it aroused some pretty strong feelings as well. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I, um, I from time to time now, quite a significant part of my work now, is, is getting alongside church leaders and um, sitting in on their leaders' meetings and um, generally sort of helping them to work through and think through issues of growth and change and, and all, all the stuff that goes with it. And um, I was invited to do this with the church in Nottingham a few months ago. And uh, before I ever went to visit the elders, the pastor, and the congregation, I, I got my son, um, Ben, to go with his wife over to Nottingham one Sunday morning, um, unannounced, as a sort of mystery worshipper. You know what I mean? You know the idea of a mystery shopper? I sent him over. I gave him a great list of questions, a big checklist so I said, I, I want your opinion, I want your thoughts about what's the signage like. Does it sound sneaky? Sorry if it sounds sneaky. But I wanted a bit of objective comment, you see. Um, because if they'd known I was going, then they may, knowing I was going to do a review and assessment with them, they may have just put on their best face, you see. Uh, uh, 
the signage, the car parking, the music, the, the, the condition of the fabric of the building, um, the, the, the quality of the musicians, the whole thing. I want your feedback on all this. And one of the things I asked him was, I want you to make a note of the first words of the sermon. First words of the sermon. Well, these were Jesus' first words. Jesus says, all this that Isaiah spoke about, this one chosen by God, enabled by God, uniquely qualified to come and be my suffering servant, son, saviour, king, redeemer of Israel, all this kicks off here, now, this synagogue, this town, Nazareth. With me. Do, do you get that, folks? What an incredibly staggering thing that was to have said. Well, just really, really remarkable. It's happening now, and I'm the one that's doing it. And we see that uh, they spoke well of him, verse 22. They were amazed at his gracious words, which I think tells us that there's a great deal more that Jesus said, which is not recorded here. They're obviously referring to a whole lot that he said. And um, what he said leads on to an angry confrontation. Let's take up the reading at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. There's a bit of a dichotomy. There's a bit of a kind of um, struggle going on in this, in this one verse. Because the first part says that they spoke well of him. And they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Yes, but they also asked, isn't this Joseph's son? Um, if you compare what's recorded in Matthew's gospel, as he gives an account of the same event, you, you get a fuller picture of what they said. Um, putting the two gospels together, this is what they said. said, look, um, w we know this man. We know he is Joseph's son. We know he is a carpenter. His mother's name is Mary. He has four brothers. James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. His sisters are here with us. They say all that. Do you see, at the same time as being impressed with the way he spoke, they got masses of queries. And because the bottom line is this. They thought they knew him. They would got him pigeonholed, categorized, sifted, sorted, labeled, pinned down, you see. They knew his father, supposedly. They knew his mother. They knew his siblings. They knew his occupation. Uh, so what we're seeing here is he, he's actually suffering from familiarity. Suffering from the fact that people thought they, they knew him. And the thought that he could be anything more than a young man that they'd seen grow up was, was, was very difficult for them. And I think we, we, we ought to have a little bit of sympathy for that. Um, those of us particularly who are older, and I, mean, I certainly include myself in that category, I've certainly got a lot more history than I have future, humanly speaking. Um, those of us who are older, I think, if we're honest, we sometimes struggle to allow young people in our church to really grow up, don't we? We've known them from when they were babes in arms. We remember the day that the proud parents brought them to church on the very first Sunday of their lives. And we've seen them grow through the Sunday creation, the Sunday school, and into the junior youth work, and through the youth work. And but it, it's hard, isn't it? The first time I ever went to the church at Andrew Conlon, 
was part of when he was a boy I in Birmingham. I was about 24 years of age. Andrew was significantly younger. Um, I first went to this particular church in Birmingham when I was 24. And uh, one of the elders, the leaders of the church, who was at that time an elderly man, uh, came to greet me when I arrived. And um, he said, uh, ah, now, Bob, he said, good, glad to see you're, you're here. He said, um, um, look forward to hearing you tonight. He said, now, we've asked, I've asked young Albert to lead the service for you. He's a good lad, and we're bringing him on. Young Albert. When young Albert appeared, he was at least 50 years old. I mean, he was more than twice my age. And I tell you, we struggle in churches with what I call the young Albert syndrome. We need to understand that people change, people grow. And that the boy, the girl that you knew when they were a youngster is now a man, a woman of God with their own spiritual gifts and callings and skills and, and ministries. And so Jesus is suffering a little bit from, from this. And they obviously said to him, prove it. If you're this one who's coming to proclaim freedom to captives and restore sight to the blind and, and release the oppressed and, and declare the, the year of God's favor, if you're this one Isaiah spoke about, prove it. Because they go on to say to him, do a miracle here like we heard you've been doing in Capernaum. And the irony is this. Jesus effectively is saying to them, well, actually, your very attitude of disbelief and hostility means that I can't, in fact, possibly, or I won't, even possibly, I can't. Do you see that? Let's, let's pick it up. Jesus said in verse 23, following some discussion which is not recorded for us in verse 22, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Do you see? Prove it. I tell you the truth, he continued, verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut. That means it didn't rain for three years. That was a judgment from God on his people. He'd said, if you go astray and follow false gods and start worshipping idols and sacrificing your children and all the other stuff that you're getting into, if you do that, I'll, I'll, I'll turn off the tap for three years. And they did, and, and he did, because he has a track record of doing what he says he's going to do. Nasty stuff as well as nice stuff. That's the, the fact of it. God keeps his word. And there was a severe famine, verse 25, throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, the people who were under God's judgment. He wasn't sent to them to relieve them of their famine. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And when Elijah was no longer on the scene and his protege, his apprentice Elisha, was sent to stage as Israel's prophet, he says in verse 26, um, or verse 27, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only a Syrian, Naaman, Naaman. You see, what Jesus does here is remind them of their own history. Now remember, these are people to whom Jesus has come with his message with all the promise of God's favor, of sight instead of blindness. 
He's come to people who are groping around in a spiritual fog, and he says, God has sent me to bring sight to the blind. He's come to people who are struggling with bad habits and all manner of sin in their life. He says, God has sent me to you to tell you that you can be released from all that. He's come to people who have been oppressed by the devil. He says, I can deliver you. He's come to these people, and they are rejecting him. And so Jesus says, right, now in view of that rejection, let me remind you of your own history and of God's track record. God has a track record of stepping around people who reject him and bringing blessing to other people who might have no expectation of being blessed They've got no claim on God. They're ignorant of God's law. They've not been given the Ten Commandments. They don't have a temple. They don't have sacrifice. God says, I don't care. If the people that I was trying to reach out to, if they reject me, I will step around them and I will bless someone else. He said he did it in Elijah's day. He did it in Elisha's day. And he will do it in your day. In short, he says this, if you pass up this opportunity to hear and respond to this good news, to be released from sin's grip, to have your eyes open to God in a way that they've never been before, to get right with him in these days of opportunity. That's what it means, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I've come to tell you that this is your opportunity to get right with God. But if you pass up that opportunity, I assure you, says Jesus, there will be plenty of other people who won't. And the idea, as I draw to a close, the idea that God might love and bless other nations incenses these people. And in the course of one service in the synagogue, I mean, it's just incredible the rapidity with which this happens. Within probably 30 minutes, they move from being amazed at what he said to being so incensed with him that we read in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. When they heard what? That, that God would bless others if they passed up on their opportunity. That God had no favorites. That God plays no favorites. That what God was doing was too good to be kept just for one small group of people. When they heard this, they were furious. Verse 29, they got up drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, listen, friends, we've remembered it this morning in bread and wine. There, there would come a day in the life of Jesus when he would not walk away from the mob, when he would not sidestep the violence which they intended for him. But it wasn't this day. It wasn't this day. He walked right away from them. And I, I just close as I tell you this, that, look, Isaiah's prophecy and the words of Jesus make this clear. Um, the consequences of recognizing that Jesus Christ is God's son, the suffering servant king are enormous incalculable and they're here um, 
liberty from sin, understanding about God, God's favour, tremendous consequences to believing in Jesus. But the consequences of rejecting him were for these people and are still today very grave indeed. Because I may be wrong on this, but it seems to me from the Bible that this could have been the last time Jesus ever went to Nazareth. He may have gone back, but it's not at all clear that he did. And you see, still today, he will come into the life of anyone who says, Lord, I, I see it. I get it. You are the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And I want you. That's what the Bible says. He came to his own people. His own people did not receive him, but to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the authority to consider themselves children of God. But just as today he still comes to those who will welcome him, so there are consequences today for those who will not. Nazareth had had its chance. That's the bottom line. And I wonder about us. I really do. I was thinking about this when I was putting these notes together yesterday and earlier this, this week. I'm just guessing this. Uh, this is a sort of congregation where I know that generally speaking there are people sitting in the service who are what I call they're in the process of coming to faith in Christ they, they, they've been they've had conversations they've perhaps done a little sort of introduction to Christianity course of some sort they've attended services they're weighing it all up is that you are you are you weighing it all up considering it very carefully that that's tremendously important and commendable but you know there must come a time for each one of us when we move from deliberation to decision when we 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 don't need to know any more we know enough to make a rational reasonable sincere decision and commitment to Jesus Christ and Jesus says today look today these things are happening for you. Today you're hearing good news. Today I'm offering spiritual sight and understanding. Today I'm offering freedom from sin, from habit, from addiction, from bondage. I'm offering all these things today. Are you oppressed? Does life and stuff crush you down? Jesus says, I've come to deliver the oppressed, you see. Today these things are being fulfilled for us. And if you're in that process of coming to faith in Christ, you've got to ask yourself, folks, you really have. What am I waiting for now? How much more do I need to know before in my heart I say, yes, Jesus, you're the one for me. You're the one for me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word preserved for us your voice speaking to us your son sent for us if you've never asked Christ into your life if you've never said yes to Jesus folks what about doing it now quietly while you're praying 
you could pray a little prayer like this, Lord Jesus Christ. Just say it in your heart after me, not out loud. Lord Jesus, I know there's a lot about you I don't understand. There's a lot about you I never will, I suppose. But I believe today you are God's son. You did come into my world. You did die for me on the cross. I believe you rose again from the dead. And I want you to come and be part of my life. I want to live with you and for you from this time on. Please open the eyes of my heart. Please set me free from the things which have got me in a stranglehold. Please help me to live and walk in the favor of God from this time on. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that simple prayer, then do have a word with me or Darren or Phil or Andrew or Kim or someone here, a leader or someone you know to be a real Christian. Just say to me or to them, I prayed that prayer. Don't have to make a speech. I prayed that prayer. And it'll be our joy and privilege to pass on some helpful literature to you and to encourage you in the decision you've made. Well, that's it, folks. I'm done. Look forward to seeing you in about three years' time. God bless you.